Hello, this is Jim Martin with Little Things First, and I am here with my new co-host. Don't worry, Tracy Van Venter and I are still talking, but uh, she has decided to take a break from podcasting for a little while. So I have Rachel Nance here. Hi, Rachel. Hey, hey. hi. How are you? I am great. I am really excited to be joining the efforts of you and 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 Tracy and spirit. And I appreciate her endorsement for me to, to take her spot, of course, in no way to replace her, but to take her spot nonetheless. <laughs> okay. Well, so tell us a little bit about yourself, Rachel. Uh, so I go way back with Jim and Tracy back to Salt Lake city school district. Um, I worked there for about 18 years and started as a middle school teacher of English learners and then moved into the district office to be an instructional coach that supported teachers to better meet the needs of English learners. Then I kind of broadened the scope as I moved into the equity department to, in addition to uh, language development and acquisition support to help the district kind of look at their um, issues of inequities and institutional racism and um, did some work on equity audits and courageous conversations about race. And then it was the Title I director and kind of launched the initiative to create uh, a more authentic partnership between Title I schools and the families that they serve rather than a quote unquote partnership that really was just about charity. Um, and then moved into the administrative role as an assistant principal of a middle school and was there for three years and then took over that school as the principal for three years. We went through a school improvement grant and actually did turn our school around and was visited by the Secretary of Education, Arnie Duncan at the time to see how we made the changes because we were one of very few secondary schools who successfully implemented a SIG and worked with University of Virginia um, partners and leaders of education to sustain our turnaround efforts. Um, and then eventually just felt like I was ready for something new and uh, left the school district and went into consulting. And I've been doing that for five years working about half my work is in the state of Utah and the other half is across the nation and in all different kinds of settings and areas. So loving that COVID obviously um, put a wrench in that and it's turned into something I didn't initially foresee, but still feel really lucky that I get to connect with people across the nation through Zoom and hopefully we'll really get back to pers in-person um, support. You started your own consulting company. What's the name of that? I did. It's called um, Intentional Design Consulting has two of my favorite words, intentional. Um, when I was, let's see, when I was an instructional coach, I just, there was a lack of resources for people who really wanted to meet the needs of English learners. And um, our district was under review of the Office of Civil Rights for nine years because we were not meeting the needs of um, multilingual learners. And so I created a website back 170 years ago called intentionalinstruction.com. I actually still think it's there. I, every once in a while I have people who uh, will make comments about it. Like I'll just meet them randomly and then they'll figure out that I'm the one that has that. I, I should look and see if it's still up, but 
So I've always loved the word intentional. Um, I like it in the professional sense and in the personal sense as well. Um, so when I decided to open my own company, I just had to use that word. And then design to me is a really important word as well, because I think it, it kind of captures all of what's necessary in leadership. So it captures reflection and forethought and input and revisions and iterations and strategies and measurements. And, you know, when you design something, you're not just like, I always say hope is not a strategy. So you're not just hoping for good things to come. You're actually intentionally creating the systems and structures that will result in the good things that you want. So yeah, I put those two words together, intentional design and then consulting. And there we go. All right. That's awesome. I love that story. I love that genesis of those, of that name and yeah. using those two words. That's really great. Yeah. yeah. So if any of you out there listening need a coach or a consultant, you got one right here with Rachel. She's awesome. So yeah, my, my work as a consultant has definitely evolved. Um, you know, there's some I'll just start with shout outs. There's Johanna, Myra, and um, Josie Hernandez Gutierrez, who kind of threw me the lifeline when I left Salt Lake District and didn't really know what I was doing. And, and then Mike Kite has since come um, to create a, a new path for me in regard to supporting the leaders of New Mexico. So yeah, I think, you know, some people really helped me get started and now into the point where I've identified what part of consulting and coaching I enjoy and find joy in and, and thrive in. So leadership co coaching, you know, one-on-one -on -one or with leadership teams is definitely part of it and kind of systems development and management. So yeah, anyone reach, awesome. reach out Josie to me. Was have, of, Josie was one of our guests on the podcast a while back. So I know I heard it. I was the one who recommended her. Remember? Yeah, that's great. I remember that. Yeah. Great. So, um, all right. Well, I'm so glad to have you. That's so exciting. And we're entering into a new year, 2022. Yeah, so let's hope it's better than the last two. <laughs> right. So, um, what, um, what do you think about New Year's resolutions? Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? You know, I've never done new year's resolutions myself. I, so, but I also feel like if it's the impetus to help you make some goals and stick to it, then have at it. I think, you know, I think the buzz out there is that it's not very, um, people aren't successful at new year's resolutions. Cause it's like the, a kind of a trite time to begin, but yeah. I'm sure some people are successful. What do you think? Yeah. And then you just sort of feel disappointed with yourself after like, you know, you start like, I'm going to lose weight or I'm yeah. going to, you know, do this. And then you don't. So, but yeah, I always do it anyway. Like, do I, you? yeah, I start the year and I'm kind of like, okay, this year I'm going to be more, I'm not going to procrastinate as much, or I'm going to write my novel this year, or I'm going to write my <laughs> book this year. And I just... And here we are, December, and I still haven't done it. So, yeah. Anyway. yeah. Have you ever been successful at a New Year's goal? 
Um, no, not really. No. <laughs> That's funny because you're a very strategic person professionally. So are you, are you transferring those skills to your personal life? I think that I have more success making changes during the summer, you know, like when there's that natural transition yeah. that between one year and the next, because then you have like this built in time, you have, you know, a few months to kind of think about things, reflect, right. get, get some things organized and get ready for the new year. And then you can start off successfully. But I feel like, you know, to do it on January 1st just doesn't make sense for me professionally. And a lot of my goals are professional goals. So. Yeah. Well, that's what I wonder, like as educators, our kind of internal clock does work differently than the calendar, right? Yeah. So I'm the same, like every, you know, August, the beginning of August, I always sit down and think, what was I, what am I pleased about last year? What do I want to do differently? So I do wonder if maybe the New Year's thing doesn't work for us because our internal clock is like, what? January. Yeah. I wonder though if educators experience the same thing, you know, like in October, they're kind of like, oh man, I screwed up my new year's goals and now I feel like a failure and I just want to start over again. I think I kind of felt like that sometimes as a teacher, you know, like I would be well, like, oh, in October, all the things I wanted to do and wanted to try didn't work out and now I'm disappointed and I just Well, yeah, haven't you haven't you seen that teacher roller coaster? Yeah, yeah. And it is disillusionment is the end of October and beginning of November. Like that's the worst time of the year for educators is then. Right. Because they have their New Year's goals that don't succeed. Think of every day as kind of a new day, right? Like here's my new day. I can set a new goal. I can try something new today. I can, you know. Yeah. So, and then, you know, if I screw up, then I can do it again tomorrow. And I, there's nothing right. the stakes are lower so yeah well I'm always available as your, your accountability partner Jim thank you I've been doing this journal thing this year that's called um, the daily SEL leader so social emotional learning leader and it's all about it's written for leaders of course in schools and it's about kind of identifying what your emotions are and uh, kind of setting some intentional goals. There's even a survey in there so you can kind of see where you're weak in social emotional learning. And the idea is, is that, you know, what right do we have to be teaching? Ooh, sorry, I'm home and I have my dogs here. Your dog too. <laughs> what right do we have to teach social emotional learning if we are not socially and emotionally stable ourselves? So anyway. Well, I think that question I would love to dig into that with you on another episode because I have great concern about that question itself. What right do we have to be quote unquote social emotional leaders and teachers of teachers and kids when we don't have the true training that that is required of that very vulnerable and fragile and potentially harmful area of the human existence, I think. So hold that for another episode. Yes, yes. Maybe we can get those guys on here to- Ooh, start. that'd be cool. Yeah, so that's a really great book. Maybe they can talk me out of my pessimism. <laughs> right. Well, I think they would probably agree with you that you have to do work yourself in order to be able to do the work that kids need because otherwise 
you know. Yeah, and I think a, a lot of adults don't know how to do that work. Right. Right. Like, I mean, I've been going to therapy for eight years. I do the work, but I do the work because I have someone who I pay who knows how to do the work, help me do the work. Right. Right. So that's, I mean, that's a, a big concern I have. Right. Um, yeah. So cool. So yeah. Yeah. We'll have to talk. Do you think you can get Arnie Duncan on here? Your, your BFF. Oh so my God. So I don't know. Supposedly the word is, is he remembers everyone he meets and that he is very friendly. I wouldn't, I wouldn't not reach out to him. In fact, if you remember, um, when we had the superintendent um, open after Mikkel mm -hmm. and there were the three people who came in and the one man, do you remember his name? Uh, yeah, Chris uh, Moheep, I think. Yes. yes, so he came to my school, right? As part of his tour of the district when I was the principal of Northwest and he actually worked with Arnie in Chicago. And I had mentioned that Arnie came and he was like, oh, you should totally reach out to him anytime. He'll for sure remember you. And, and he's super like into being, you know, boots on, not, I'm not using that phrase, like in the, in the thick of it. So I don't know. I'll, I'll reach out to him. Yeah. Why not? I mean, he's yeah. been busy now. He's not the secretary of education. He's no, he does really have waiting for the podcast invites. <laughs> totally. I'm <laughs> he sure he's not busy at all. I think he has, he's running some program to like to support maybe people men who come out of prison to integrate back into society oh that's cool it seemed like i i looked it up yeah because i was wondering what he's doing yeah i'll try all right okay i'm gonna hold you to it all right so today we're gonna be talking to we do have a guest today for those of you who are wondering we have mike anderson who actually has been a previous guest on the episode on the podcast but this is a new episode because we wanted to talk to him about his new book which is the motivation crisis and uh, there's more to the title that he can tell us about it in a minute. But uh, I just thought we maybe could talk a little bit about motivation in schools because his book is all about, you know, stars and uh, pizzas and marble jars. And, and that those are bad things, right? Yeah, kind of getting rid of those things. I don't want to put words into his mouth because he can talk about his sure. opinion on all of that. But just was wondering what your thoughts are because our schools are still very much run on kind of extrinsic rewards. So, you know, those types of incentives and, and really, you know, we have positive behavior intervention support systems that are built on those systems. We don't certainly, I mean, I think the idea is, is that they'll build intrinsic motivation, but they don't really, I don't think. What do you think? I don't know that I don't, I've never read anything that says PBIS is supposed to build, intri build intrinsic motivation. I think it's supposed to build muscle memory and it's supposed to build habits of thinking and habits of behavior. Sure. Um, but you do something over and over again enough times and then it becomes. Right. right. So I don't know because I myself sometimes like extrinsic motivation. I mean, I like to be acknowledged. You know, I always ask when I coach people, I'm always like, what's your love language? And there is a lot of us in the leadership field 
who's who the, that I've asked have said just affirmation and acknowledgement. So if we're, I think it depends on how we define intrinsic and ex- extrinsic motivation, right? Like yeah. not very many of us will say, I want presence, right? Or like, I want, I want a gift card to McDonald's when I well, do I don't something. Know, I don't know about that because, you know, when, when my son and I did that love language exercise to really try to communicate with one another better and his love language was gifts. Like, yeah, I know. I know. I know that is some people's love yeah. language. Yeah. I, I've never had a principal say, I want gifts <laughs> when I'm coaching them. But I have had many of them say, I want to be acknowledged and I want affirmation. And isn't that extrinsic motivation? It is, right. And praise would be considered in that too. And so, you know, some people might argue that you should even, you know, put that back on the kids, you know, like, are you proud of this? Because kids will say, you know, like, teacher, look at this. Do you like my art? You know, and you're supposed to say, uh, what do you think of your art? You know, and try to put it back on them rather than. I'm looking for that outside yeah. validation, but I don't know. I've never been able to do that. Yeah. I'm always like, oh, that's wonderful. You know, I'm trying to build our self-esteem. Good oh. job. I try to be specific though in my feet. Uh-huh, yeah, specific. I really like your green leaves and uh, oh, the realism and the bark is so um, on the point, you know, so. Yeah. And, you know, like thinking again about the comparison of what leaders what motivates the leaders that I work with versus, you know, the kids that leaders work with like those marble jars, that's a scoreboard of sorts. So if you read four disciplines of execution by Covey, which is a big book in leadership, their third discipline is a scoreboard and that everyone involved, everyone who is supposed to contribute to the final outcome should see a scoreboard. So in some, I mean, in some ways, like that marble on the teacher's desk is somewhat of a scoreboard. So again, I don't, I I think it's both ends. Yeah. That's my easy answer. You got to have a little bit of both in order to be successful. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, there are people out there who are very much still behaviorists, you know, like it's all about the incentives and keeping those coming and they believe you know four to one kind of a yeah. you gotta have those four positives yeah. to one correction in order to be able to get the desired behavior and that's all extrinsic yeah I mean and you know if we go back to Gloria Ladson Billings um she I she's like the teachers who effectively taught BIPOC kids and allowed them or encouraged them to maintain their racial identity, did whatever it takes mm. to do so, right? Conjoling, bribing, tricking, praising, teaching, like all of it. It was like all whatever it takes to get you to be academically successful in the broken system that we have built for public education and maintain your racial and cultural identities. So again, I think we just have to know our kids and what do they need. Right. I think sometimes we put so much of like what you shouldn't do that, you know, I think teachers are overwhelmed with like, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this rather than like, yeah, try it, you know, kind of be an inquirer and try this and then try something different and see which worked better. Be kind of a, you know, that inquiry mindset. I don't think 
urge that very often. It's just like a bunch of don'ts. And so right. then you're like, well, what do I do then? So, so I do see in Mike's new book that when I'm looking at his um, tape or his table of contents, uh, he does have like teaching self-motivation and self-management, you know, moving away from the incentive system. So it sounds like he has alternatives. It's not just a don't do this book. So I'm excited to see what those alternatives he talks about. Thanks. Well, he has actually entered the waiting room. So we'll let him in Okay. and see what he actually has to say about his book. So here is Mike Anderson. Awesome. Hello, Mike. Hey, Jim. How you doing? Good. Good. This is our my new co-host, Rachel Nance. Right, Teresa's taking a break from podcasting for a while, a self-imposed break, and so uh, this is the first time that Rachel's been on. Oh, awesome! Hi, Rachel. Hi. I'm nice. Nice to meet you. I listened to your first podcast with Jim and Tracy, so I'm excited to be here for part two. Cool. Yeah, it should be an interesting conversation. Are you also out in Colorado? Utah. We're both in Utah. Oh, Utah. I don't know where I got Colorado from. Four Corners area. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, funny. Well, thanks for uh, sticking with me because I know it was a little bit challenging to get this scheduled and, you know, time zones and all of that. So, um, but I'm excited to see you again because you have a new book out and we sort of set it up a little bit before you got in here to talk a little bit about motivation, intrinsic, extrinsic. And so, Tell us what the title is and kind of what your premise is. Sure. Are we actually in the podcast right now? We're in. <laughs> We're in. Oh, all right. This is enough of the small talk. Let's just get to it. <laughs> well, well, actually, let, hold on. I need to be a good host, a nice, <laughs> pleasant, you know, like, hi, how are you? Let's learn a little bit about you. Tell a little bit about yourself. <laughs> sure. We can start there. Okay. Uh, so... My name is Mike Anderson, and I've been an educator forever. I was a classroom teacher for 15 years. I taught third, fourth, and fifth grades in East Lyme, Connecticut, and then Portsmouth, New Hampshire. I was a responsive classroom consultant and presenter for many years, and now for about seven plus years, I've been out of my own as an independent education consultant, working with schools and teachers all over the place, mostly in the US, a little bit of international work, but not a ton. Um, I don't really love being in planes and in hotels. So when I can work with schools close to home, that's my preference. Um, but I work in lots of schools all over. And, um, and I've also authored many books. So I'm excited to talk with you today about the latest one. That's awesome. So great. Now that we know a little bit about you, now we can dive into your new book. So tell us a little bit about the, the premise behind your, your latest. Yeah, so this, this latest book is called Tackling the Motivation Crisis. And the basic premise of it is, um, I think we often get motivation wrong in schools, at least partly. Um, I often, when I was a classroom teacher, sometimes parents would say to me, oh, Mike, you're such an amazing teacher. You do such a great job of motivating your students. And I always knew that teachers, uh, that parents meant that in a positive way. But I would sort of cringe a little bit when I heard parents say, oh, I love how you motivate your kids, because I always felt like that wasn't really my job and that I didn't wanna be the one motivating my students. I wanted to help them become more self-motivated. And so I felt like if I were a good teacher, my kids would get fired up about learning, not just because I was exciting, but because they were actually excited about the work itself. 
And often as a consultant, I'm asked questions about, you know, how do we motivate our kids? We need new strategies for how to motivate our kids. And I kind of feel like if that's our goal, the energy is coming from the wrong place. Mm. Um, and so what we often do in schools is we focus on strategies for getting our kids motivated and excited. Um, we'll often offer things like, you know, pizza if kids will read in the summer or gem jars and marble jars if kids will behave well or work hard during class. Um, we've got sticker charts up on the wall where, you know, anybody who gets a 90 above on a quiz gets their name on the super sticker star of the week board. And all of these systems that we design to try and get kids excited about learning can actually have a really negative uh, impact in the long run. They'll often work in the moment of getting kids motivated, but that, that shine wears off pretty quick. And then we're left with kids who are even less motivated than they were before we began those things. Mm -hmm. And it often takes, the, takes, the, take, takes our eye off the ball. Instead of kids focusing on the learning, they're focusing on the prize or they're focusing on the gimmick or the treat. And that can actually um, lead kids to learn less when we use those systems. So what I tried to do in this book is really dig into what are some of the problems with those incentive systems that many of us are using? And I used them myself in my own teaching and worked away from them. Um, how do we tap into kids' intrinsic motivations? Because kids are already motivated. They're not necessarily motivated to do the stuff that we're putting in front of them, which is part of the problem, but, but they've got motivations. And so how do we tap into those? And then the third part of the book is about, and how do we help kids build the skills of self-motivation and self-management that they need to follow through on their motivation. Because, you know, it's not enough to be motivated if you can't make yourself do hard stuff, if you don't know what to do when you get stuck, if you get frustrated and you just shut down, or if you just get overwhelmed by a big project. It doesn't matter how excited you are to do a research project on Jackie Robinson. You're going to get stuck at some point. And so you need to have skills and strategies for how to work through uh, some of that when you get there. So that that's what the book is attempting to do, is sort of lay out those three key ideas in a way that's really practical and makes sense for teachers. Yeah, I love, I was looking at the table of contents and I appreciated that you do have ways to move away from the, from the extrin extrinsic. So it's not just a book about what we're all doing badly. Well, and I kind of feel like that's been done already. Yeah. Um, I, I remember reading Punished by Rewards by Alfie Cohn. Oh, don't even get me started about Alfie Cohn. <laughs> well, and I got to tell you, I love a lot of Alfie's work. His research is incredible. He's, he makes lots of great points. Um, he's also a provocateur. So his goal is to get you riled up. And sometimes, yeah. yeah and sometimes his message gets lost in his messaging. Yeah. So if you're already on board, you can get all fired up when he talks about, you know, don't don't use grades like doggy treats. But, but I, I worry sometimes that, that some of the people who most need to hear the message about moving away from incentives can be kind of turned off by how, how strong he is in his messaging. Um, and I also feel, and as much as I loved that book, Punished by Rewards, as a classroom teacher, it left me feeling a little bit like, okay, so now I know what not to do. Right. But I need a little bit more of what to do. And right. so definitely that's what I'm trying to do in this book is offer some really practical strategies from my own experience as a teacher, from my work as a consultant, working with teachers in schools. Like what are the things that actually work that can allow us to help, help kids tap into their intrinsic motivations so that we're not trying to motivate them all the time. So how do you define 
intrinsic motivation and extrinsic motivation? So the simple definition is intrinsic motivation is motivation that comes from within. So they're motivations that are, are cooked into the human psyche. And there are six that I outline in the book that I think are common to all, all people. Um, autonomy, it's our need for power and control and self-direction. Belonging is our need for personal connection with other people. Purpose is our need to understand why we should worry about something or care about something. When we feel a sense of purpose, we can be incredibly motivated about our work. Um, competence is another one. It's really motivating to know that we're good at something or to see ourselves growing and getting better at something. That's, that can fire us up. Curiosity, it's all about those um, sort of innate interests we have. Like, you know, some kids are really into skateboarding. Some kids are really into frogs and toads. Some kids are interested in weather. Um, some kids are into sports. There are certain things we're just curious about or interested in. And when we can tap into those, kids can be fired up about learning. And then the final one is fun, which is, you know, about lighthearted pleasure and enjoyment. Um, it, somehow adding dice and cards to math where kids get to roll dice and flip playing cards to come up with math facts to, to practice. It's a lot more fun than, you know, filling out that yeah. Mr. Prescott told me I never did fast enough as he had like glucky milk stuck in the corner of his mouth. Gross on both counts. The not I going know. fast enough and the milk, that's yucky. I remember um, crying onto that blue fa fast math worksheet week after week, Jim. Well, and so, wow. that, so this touches on an important point that those, those intrinsic motivators I just listed are all things that can make us really motivated, but when they're in deficit, yeah. they can be demotivators. Yeah. So if you feel incompetent, it's really hard to work hard and care about something. If you don't see the purpose, it yeah. can make it really hard to care. If you don't feel connected to other people, if you don't have any power and control, all those things can demotivate. Um, so that's, that's an important thing to recognize. So, th so those, that's intrinsic motivation. Those are the motivations that we all have cooked into us. We could also call them psychological needs. Uh -huh. Extrinsic motivation is motivation that comes from without. So when somebody else says, if you study really hard, you can get this good grade on a test. The grade is now being used as the extrinsic motivator. Yeah. Or if the teacher says, okay, everybody, if you can work really hard, we'll go out for an extra 10 minutes of recess. The recess is being used as an extrinsic motivator. And so, um, and it's not that extrinsic motivators have no place. Uh, we could be too black and white about this. That's what Jim and I were talking about before you got on. I was like, well, the answer has to be both and. Here's right? a classic example. Here's a classic example. As teachers, none of us could work for free. Right. Like we need to get paid for our work because that's how we're supporting our families. That's how we put food on the table. However, I haven't met a single teacher, well, maybe one in my <laughs> career, but almost no teacher I've ever talked to went into teaching for the money. Right. Like, if so, bad call, because there are lots of things we could be doing where we would make more money with less stress, yeah. but yeah. we went into teaching because of a sense of purpose, because yeah. we love working with kids and it's fun for us, because we're good at it and that makes us feel competent. Like those are the things that fire us up. What was the so, first one? Autonomy. Autonomy. Okay. So, um, Jim, I'm like talking too much. 
No, you're doing great. Terms, Jim? Oh, I had to put myself on mute for a minute because my dog started barking at oh, home. Okay. So, you know, the, okay. the stresses of at-home work. But yeah. um, anyway, so, uh, but I've been listening and taking it all in. I've been making connections to some other things that have come about, you know, like purpose, uh, sharing learning targets in the classroom. And, you know, sometimes teachers wonder about the utility of that, but being able to tie it to motivation, I think is really brilliant. And um, competence, you know, we've been moving towards a competency-based system where we want kids to be able to master standards, to be able to move on to other standards and um, not just use grades as, you know, effort or whatever. Um, and so I'm, I'm making a connection to that and just helping kids to feel confident, being able to, to see that mastery and being able to continue to persevere through challenging content until they have mastered it. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited about some of this that you're talking about because um, I too read Punished by Rewards and I read it way back in college when I was an undergraduate. and I thought, yes, this is the answer, but then I never found it. Uh, I was never able to do it, you know, like in theory, I loved it, but I was never able to do it as a teacher because I just think that uh, it wasn't meant to be practical. And, and I love that you've added that practicality and tied it to things that we're working on in the larger educational field. Well, so one of the things that I explored in the book, and it gets a whole chapter in the book, is, is sort of what you're saying. Like I read Punished by Rewards right out of college. I think it came out in 1993-ish, which was when I graduated and started teaching. And same thing, I was all fired up. Um, I mean, that's been out for almost 30 years now. Dan Pink wrote Drive, yep. The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us, another book that I love. And he's got all kinds of practical applications in there, especially for the business world, but many translate to education. <laughs> Um, there's a great book, Why We Do What We Do, which is all about motivation. Um, some of my colleagues at ASCD wrote um, Beyond Carrots and Sticks, another great book about like, so one of the chapters that I, that I really dig into in there is, so why are we still doing this? If these books have all been out right. for so long, and many of us have read these books, and many of us have heard the message that we should be moving away from the use of extrinsic motivators and tapping into more authentic intrinsic motivations, why are we still doing it? And that was something I decided to do a real deep dive into because I was curious about that. And I think there are a few reasons. One is that many teachers are told to use these systems. Um, many schools that use PBIS use token economy systems. And it doesn't have to be the case, by the way. PBIS does not necessarily have to be connected to token economy systems. It often is. That's the way it's implemented, but it doesn't have to be. Um, their, their anchor about that, their, their belief system that's behind that is children need to be recognized for positive behavior. So positive behaviors need to be recognized. They don't say positive behaviors need to be rewarded. Mm-hmm. And there's a difference. You're doing it wrong. So well, how, what, what would you do instead? So how, talk us through that. So I, I'm a principal in an elementary school. And so I know how tokenistic PBIS can become. So how do we get around that? So here's a really simple example. When I was um, when I was working with Responsive Classroom many years ago, one of my um, one of my direct supervisors was Paula Denton, who wrote this amazing book called The Power of Our Words. She was she's on my Mount Rushmore of educators who've influenced my career. You know, she's she she meant a lot to me. Still does. And she had a meeting with somebody very high up in PBIS. He was out of UConn, I think. And she said she was asking about this very question. Instead of passing out cougar bucks in the hall, 
you know, when kids are being walking quietly in the hall, she said, is it enough to say, Jim, I just saw you walking really quietly in the hallway. That's taking care of learners in other classrooms. She said, does that check the PBIS box for recognized positive behavior? He said, absolutely. So giving more verbal positive feedback to kids, not the traditional praise. Because if, if I said, Jim, nice walking in the hallway, good job. Yeah. And you're earning my approval for working, walking in the hallway. Now I've just turned the praise into an extrinsic motivator because it's about pleasing somebody else. But if I say, hey, Jim, you just walked really quietly in the hallway. That's really taking care of other people in other classrooms. Now you get a chance to feel a sense of like, oh yeah, I am taking care of other people. Yeah, that makes me feel good. So that's connecting with your intrinsic motivation yeah. about belonging and connection with other people and a sense of competence. So that's one thing that we could do. Another thing we could do, so I love, by the way, the subtitle of the book that I came up with, and I wish I could take credit for it, but my editor really helped a lot. So the subtitle is How to Activate Student Learning Without Behavior Charts, Pizza Parties, or Other Hard-to-Quit Incentive Systems. So sometimes people read that and they say, are you saying we're not allowed to have pizza parties in school anymore? Now, of course, who am I to say what you can or can't do? Like, I don't like it when people say, are you saying I'm not allowed to? <laughs> who am I? However, I'm all for pizza parties. So here's how, we might, here's how we might shift the paradigm. On Monday morning, instead of saying, okay, everybody, if you can work really hard this week, we've got a lot of work to do on our independent research projects. If you can really get a lot done and work hard, we'll celebrate with a pizza lunch on Friday. So now we've just turned the pizza into the extrinsic motivator. The work is now what we have to do to get the pizza, which means that kids are probably gonna be less motivated to do the work. They're gonna do the least amount possible. We send messages that the work actually doesn't matter. It's the pizza that matters. Yeah. Instead, what we can say is on Monday, hey, everybody, we got a lot of work to do. We got a research presentations coming up next week. Let's see if we can put in a really, really great effort this week. And then on Friday, we can say, we've worked so hard this week. You know what? Let's celebrate with a fun pizza party. It comes out of the blue. We didn't yeah. use it as the carrot or as the stick, you know, because most incentives are both. You know, we say that we say that if you get the pizza on Friday, that's the carrot. But there's also the stick side, which is that if you don't work hard, you won't get pizza. So or, yeah, or everyone gets the pizza party except for Jim and Rachel. They have to go next door and miss the pizza. Or worse yet, worse yet, everybody else works hard, but Jim and Rachel don't. And so now the whole class doesn't right. get pizza because Jim and Rachel didn't work hard. Right. There's layers of oh yeah. So we should absolutely be having fun pizza parties with kids and we should be doing pajama parties to read poetry for fun. And so that was the, that was the shift I made in my own teaching. So I used to bribe kids with pizza. I had a country crock butter dish on the center of every set of four desks in my classroom. And I walked around my classroom with a set of purple cardboard discs in my pocket. We called them chips. Uh -huh. And when kids were working hard, when they were being kind to each other, when they were being cooperative, I'd throw a couple of chips into the dish. And if they weren't, I'd take a couple out. Yeah. And then if they earned, if they got up to 75 chips in the dish, I would take them out for pizza for lunch because we had a pizza place right at the end of the driveway where I taught in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. And so when I got rid of that system, when I realized that there were all kinds of damages being done with that system and I got rid of it, what I did was I got rid of the chips and the dishes on the desks. Instead, I set up a rotating schedule where every Wednesday I took one of those groups out for lunch oh. at the pizza place uh -huh. because it was a fun thing to do. And it was a nice way to build community 
And, and it was a good thing. So we just did the fun thing. I didn't use it. They didn't have to earn it and they couldn't lose it. We just did it because it was fun. Yeah. So that's, that's a shift we could make in schools. Well, oh, I'm and then we got to make the work awesome. Like yeah, that's, right. that's a huge part of it is that one of the reasons we often bribe kids to get them to do the work. Sorry, now I'm sliding into that negative language. One of the reasons that we often incentivize the work <laughs> Good catch. is because we worry that the kids aren't going to care about the work. And sometimes they're right not to. Like sometimes the work that we offer kids isn't all that fun or the purpose that we offer is sort of boring grown-up purpose. Mm-hmm. You'll, in some equivalent of you'll need it someday. Mm-hmm. You know, in fifth grade, your teachers are going to expect you to have your math facts fluent. So you better practice them now. Yeah. Like that does make sense to adults. But for a nine-year-old who's struggling to practice math facts, that's probably not enough purpose. If we're practicing math facts to play games with the math facts, that might have a more kids, that might be a more kid-centric purpose. Or if we're, instead of... um you know, like writing a nonfiction piece to turn in for a grade, if instead we're going to share them with other classes, or if we're going to publish an anthology of the stories we've written, and we're going to copy it, and all the families will get copies of the anthology, like that's a, that's purpose that's centered on what kids care about. So we got to make sure that the academic work itself has got autonomy, belonging, competence, purpose, curiosity, fun. And when that stuff is cooked into the learning, then the saying that if you do the good work, you get a pizza party, it doesn't make as much sense because the work itself is motivational. I appreciate you defining that intrinsic motivation with these clarifiers, because I think in my head, I always thought like extrinsic motivation is the pizza party or the marble jar. Intrinsic motivation is drive. But this is a lot more helpful because I can't say, I cannot instill drive in Jim, who is my most struggling student, right? But I can build choice into what Jim has to do so that he feels some autonomy in my classroom. I can like see him and let him know, like, you are part of this. I am not letting you slide. Mm -hmm. So I do think that that that's really helpful for me in my head because- I kind of was like, I can't do anything about drive that you either have it or you don't. I have it sometimes. I don't have it sometimes, but I still think this, this, this then says, yes, teachers, you are responsible for creating the tenor of these intrinsic motivators within your curriculum and instructional pedagogy, which I see is one of your um, chapters as well. So talk a little bit about that. Well, and I want to comment on something that you just said, which I think is so important. One of the things that you'll hear teachers, especially upper grade teachers, middle school and high school teachers say is, well, my kids are intrinsically driven to get grades. Yeah. What they mean is the kids care a lot about the grades. They're driven by the grades. So they look like they're really motivated. And maybe they are motivated by the grade, but is that really what we're going for? And the only reason they're intrinsically motivated by the grade is because we've conditioned them to be so. It might be where they get their sense of belonging. Uh, You know, that's where they get their sense of self-worth is by getting good grades. Or they're sort of driven by this rat race we've got kids on where you've got to get the good grades so you can get into the good college. And then once you get into the good college, that's not enough. Now it's getting into the right grad school. Right. And, um, And what we're doing then is creating kids, I think, who are actually... I'm not sure they're 
truly intrinsically motivated, I think they're uber compliant. Yeah. Like they're really good at playing the school game. And I'm, and I worry about the kids who are grade grubbing and sort of panicked about not getting a 100, almost as much as I'm worried about the kids who put their hood over their head, put their head on their desk and say, I'm not doing it. This is dumb. Right. Uh, so I think that's something that we have to be sort of cognizant of because oftentimes I'm working in, in sort of suburban schools where many of the kids look like they're really self-motivated and driven, mm -hmm. but what they're doing is chasing grades. Yeah. And so if they get the grade, they don't actually care whether the work was good or not. All they're looking for is the grade. Um, and we've, and we've created that monster in yeah. schools ourselves. Um, and absolutely parent angst feeds into that too. And I get all that. I'm, I'm a parent of two kids and we live in suburbia. And so I understand all the pressures there. Yeah. Um, and, and I had two very different kids. One, one kid, we used to say to her son, Ethan, just play this school game a little bit. Like <laughs> just a little bit of playing the school game is gonna give you lots of choices later on. And for our daughter, Carly, we would often say, Carly, you don't have to be so good at playing the school game. It's okay to miss your homework every now and then. It's okay not to get a great grade on a test. Like breathe, relax, take yeah. the dog for a walk. Yeah. Um, yeah. So sorry, I lost, you asked a question back there and then I went on a little bird walk and I'm not sure I answered it. So it, it's okay. My question was about teachers' responsibilities to tap into these intrinsic motivators or to create the environment in the classroom where these intrinsic motivators can actually find space and thrive. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So I would say that that is our job as teachers is to, um, is to create learning experiences where those intrinsic motivators can be tapped into. Um, there are a couple of things to consider. One is that I think there are a few high impact practices that catch almost in every intrinsic motivator all at okay. once. Uh, so it doesn't have to be that hard. One of them is offering students choices about their learning. In a reading workshop environment, when we have a classroom library with a bunch of books in it, and we say to kids, your job is to find some just right books, books that you want to read, that you can read fluently, that'll help you grow as a reader. And then you can have kids choosing books about skateboarding, books, science fiction books, fantasy books, graphic novels. Um, they, can, they can feel a sense of competence because they're reading books that they can read fluently. There's purpose in reading books that you actually care about. It's fun. You can tap into your curiosities. There's autonomy through the choice. Um, I think it just about every single intrinsic motivator can be tapped into through simple choices about what you want to read or what you want to write. Even simple choices in math. Like, let's say we're all learning how to divide um, longer numbers, long division. We might give kids even sim three simple worksheets. One is... Um, a set of problems like yield traditional worksheet. We've created a bunch of problems or we print it right out of the math text. There's one option. Another one is a whole bunch of blank boxes where kids can create their own division problems to solve where they create the problems that are, that are at the just right challenge level. And another one might be a worksheet where we've created a bunch of problems and solved them, but made mistakes in them. And so there are the challenges to find and fix the mistakes. Even that, even that simple of a choice offers kids autonomy. They have a chance to find a sense of competence because they can work on the problems that are at the just right challenge level for them. Um, it's got more purpose. 
when, when you say to kids, all right, make a choice that for you as a mathematician is going to push you at a right level, that gives you this greater sense of like, I'm doing this for a reason. So choice is a great high leverage, uh, high leverage practice that we could be using more of, I think. And I think that might be the book that we talked about last time on the last podcast interview. I'm not sure. I've got a book all about choice too. Um, another one is independent research projects where we let kids dive into something that they're curious about. And then we find ways of connecting the competencies to that research project, whether it's around nonfiction writing or nonfiction reading um, or science or social studies um, content. So, um, and games is another, you know, when we let kids play games to practice skills and to learn about content, they can feel a sense of belonging. They can feel a sense of fun. Um, they can tap into their interests and curiosities often. So That's those great. are a few strategies that can help create the conditions where intrinsic motivation can flourish. Another thing to consider is that not everybody feels those intrinsic motivators to the same degree. Like Jim might be really, well, he might really care about his autonomy. Right. So he really needs some power and control over his learning. Otherwise he's going to shut down. Whereas you, Laura, you might really care about connecting with other people and have a sense of belonging. And so one of the things we should do is create learning experiences that offer multiple access points into those intrinsic motivators. Um, and again, choice is one of those where if we offer kids choice about books, Jim will be like, yes, I get some choice. That's what I care about is I wanna be in control. And you might be, Laura, you might be like, you know what, me and my friend, we're both gonna read the same book together so we can talk about it together. Yeah. And so now you're finding a sense of belonging through that. So um, that's something else we should consider. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I, I am wondering a couple of things. First of all, um, we talked about, Rachel and I talked about before this. Uh, yeah. Rachel, did I just call you Laura a second ago? Yeah, that's okay. Oh my gosh. I'm totally sorry. Yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> that's all right. Um, but uh, it was smooth though, Jim, the way you slid that big right? back in. Like He's got my back. Yeah. That Jim was really good. Back. Yeah, I know that about him. <laughs> Rachel and I were talking about um, SEL, you know, and how um, uh, that's something that is a big emphasis in schools now. And that, you know, perhaps we as adults need to work on our own SEL before we can expect to be able to teach it to others. But this all sounds a lot like social emotional learning. Where I'm really glad to hear you say that because I worry that we've gone off the rails a bit with SEL in schools. I'm hearing SEL being used as a proxy for things that it's not a proxy for. Right. Social emotional learning is not the same thing as trauma-informed teaching. Right. Not the same thing as mental health. Right. It has connections to those, but especially if you're listening to this podcast and you're a classroom teacher, you know, you teach math or music or writing or physical education, the social emotional skills that you should be supporting your kids with are the ones that they need to be successful readers and writers and musicians and mathematicians. Mm -hmm. And so helping kids learn how to make a just right choice involves self-awareness, being yeah. able to create a plan and follow through on it. Um, knowing how to get yourself unstuck when you've got to a stuck place, that's about emotional regulation. I was just doing a demo lesson in a class a couple of weeks ago. It was a seventh grade math class where kids are going to have some choices about problems to solve in math. And, um, and I asked the group of seventh graders before they started working on their problems, I said, hey, how many of you have ever been stuck and frustrated before in math? And of course, all their hands went up. 
I said, how many of you have ever gotten so frustrated that you went to like code red really fast and then you couldn't even work on the math anymore because you were so upset? Almost all the hands went up. I said, yeah, it happens. So let's think about some strategies ahead of time. What are some strategies you have for helping yourself calm back down when you feel yourself starting to get frustrated? And they came up with awesome ideas. They talked about taking some slow, deep breaths, getting a sip of water, skipping that problem and going on to another one and coming back to it later, getting a quick snack, asking for help. I shared a strategy that I use, which is I pinch fingers together, like using some physical pressure helps me kind of recenter myself a little bit. So we listed those ideas on the board. And then I said to all of them, all right, just think in your head, which one are you gonna try first when you get to a stuck place in your math today? And so they gave a thumbs up when they were ready. And then they started working on the math. And then after the math, we were at the end of the lesson, we came back to that list and reflected a little bit on which of those strategies kids used and which ones seemed helpful. So that's an example of blending in a little emotional coaching and teaching right into a math lesson. And if we're going to offer kids choices about math and we're going to encourage them to take risks as mathematicians and try problems, they're going to push them a little bit. We should also offer them some help with how to manage the frustration that they might feel when they get to a stuck place. So yeah, Jim, I'm so glad that you sort of recognize the connections to social emotional learning in this work, because um, I think that's such an important point. And a lot of ways, that chapter that I wrote, which is all about teaching skills and strategies of self-management and self-motivation, that, that's really a chapter all about how to make sure we're taking care of giving kids skills and strategies of, of social emotional learning so they can be successful learners. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. I also like the move away from this sort of polarity that we've created uh, with motivation of intrinsic versus extrinsic. You know, it's kind of like, you know, how do you how do you marry both worlds is, is what I hear you saying. You know, I mean, to, to move away from those strictly intrinsic um, or excuse me, strictly extrinsic motivators. Um, and, and finding that just right balance of, of you know, praise and support and, um, you know, the pizza parties, they don't have to go, but they're not you know, necessarily why kids are doing the work in the first place. So to me, that's about finding a solution that makes sense. That's a little bit more in the middle where people don't have to say, oh, yes, I'm, you know, I'm all about token economies or I'm all about intrinsic motivation. It's about kind of marrying the two. So... Yeah. And what you said is important. It's not that we like, it's not that we never do a pizza party. We don't use the pizza party as the motivation to do the work. Yeah. Because that's where the damage is done to learning and intrinsic motivation. And there's a whole chapter in the book that goes into research about sort of why that happens and how that happens. There's some really interesting research studies that highlight what happens when we use the extrinsic motivator as the motivator. Um, and some of them come from education. Some of them come from economics and sociology and psychology. Um, do you mind if I just share a couple of quick ones with you? Because I think they're fascinating. So in one of them, the researchers did this with both elementary school-aged kids and college kids. They gave them complex scientific content to learn. And half of them were told, you're learning this to take a test on it, and then you'll be graded on that test. The other half were given the same content and told, you're learning this to teach it to somebody else. And then they all were given time to learn the content. And then they all took a test 
that only half of them actually thought they were studying for. But both at the elementary level and the college level, people who were told you're learning this to teach it to somebody else scored higher on the test than the people who had been studying to take a test for a grade. Because the motivation of teaching it to somebody else gave it another sense of purpose and it was about belonging and connection to other people. So the learning went deeper. Oh, I love that. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. All right, so here's another one that's fascinating. Um, this one came out of the world of economics. And I think Dan Pink might've talked about this one in Drive. I'm not sure. Um, there were daycare centers in Israel struggling with getting parents to pick kids up on time at the end of the day. And if you've ever had to pick kids up from a daycare center, you understand the struggle. It's real, like we've all been there. And so some economists They've came all been in. Right. Well, that's what they decided to do is the economists said, let's set up an experiment and see if a negative incentive will change parents' behavior. So they instituted a policy where if parents were more than like 10 minutes late, they would get a monetary fine for picking their kids up late. And as a matter of fact, that did change parents' behavior, but not in the way most people expect more parents were showing up late after the fine was instituted. So in the schools where they said, you'll be fined if you pick your kids up late, rates of tardy pickups increased. Because if you think about it, like why do you pick, why do you try to pick your kid up on time in the first place? What's your, what's your initial motivation for doing so? Because you want your kid to feel loved and know that you're there and you're there when you say you're going to be there. And then the second reason is because Megan, the teacher yes. needs to go home because she's dealt with all these rascally kids all day. And I want Megan to enjoy herself. Yes. So you're trying to be a responsible parent. You're trying to preserve your relationship with the teacher and take care of the teacher. But what if somebody says, if you're more than 15 minutes late, you're going to pay an extra $10. Well, now you're like, oh, wait, I can pay for extra daycare. <laughs> Like now I don't have to leave my meeting early. I can get those last few things. I can stop at the store on my way there because it removes the relationship from the equation. Now, now it's, you're, making, you're making a financial decision instead of a relationship-based decision. There was another fascinating study similar that came out of Switzerland in which people were called up and were asked, would you be willing to accept nuclear waste in your hometown? And a surprising number of people said yes out of a sense of civic obligation. Somebody's got to take this waste. It's got to go somewhere. So it might as well be here. But then when the researchers, this was part of a research study, when they offered a financial kickback, you know, like if you say yes, you'll get like $2,500 in a tax rebate or something. The number of people who would accept the waste in their town dropped in half. Because now you're thinking, well, wait a minute, hang on. Is it worth it for me? Was it worth $2,500 to accept nuclear waste in my town? Huh, maybe not. And then the researchers doubled the cash incentive and the number of people who said yes dropped in half again. Wow. Because now it's starting to sound scary. Wait, you're going to pay me $5,000 to accept this sure. stuff? Like, this must be really bad. And that's kind of what happens when we say to kids, you'll get pizza gift certificates over the summer if you read. Now we have them saying, well, do I care about pizza? How much do I care about pizza? So for the kids who really care about pizza, if they're at all savvy, they're going to read lots of short, easy books because that's going to up your pizza intake. Um, for some kids who don't care about pizza, they're going to be like, well, I don't care about pizza, so I'm not going to do that. 
And then for some kids, they're going to be like, well, wait, these adults are trying to get me to read books with pizza. Reading clearly must be something I don't want to do. So it sends this crazy little message that whatever we're asking you to do must not be worthy of doing because we're trying to pay you to get you there. Um, so there, there's just some really interesting, really interesting research that points out some of the damage that those intrinsic or extrinsic motivational systems do, especially over, over time. And it might in part explain why after years of going to school, surrounded by adults who love learning, where the, the content gets more and more interesting and more complex as you get older, in institutions dedicated to learning, we see student motivation dropping over time. Yeah. And shouldn't sure. it be the other way around? That's what I always said. I always say like, whenever I'm working with teachers who say, well, my kids aren't motivated. I'm like, yeah, we beat it out of them. Mm -hmm. Like, have you ever met a four-year-old? They are motivated. They are asking why they are making grandeur imaginative explanations of the world. Like we as human beings are motivated to learn yes. and be curious and to dig into what's going on. And, and we've kind of beat it out of them. So I, I have that. two, two um, connections that I just want to mention. And then I, I do have one question for you and I don't know how long you committed to us. So is it okay if I do this? Yeah. Okay. Great on my end. Apologize about the barking dogs. Just the okay. ambience, right? Yeah, yeah. This is it's real just hard, the way, before, right? before we started the interview, I said to my 20-year-old, I'm about to do a podcast interview, so make sure you keep it down. He said, I'll make sure to yell and scream while I'm playing video games. I'm like, great. Yeah. Real life, real life. Yeah. Real life. Um, number one, it makes me think of one of my favorite uh, text references, which is SCARF. Uh, it's brain-based research. Have you read it? I haven't, but I'm writing it down. Yeah. So if you just Google SCARF, like all capital letters, so it stands for um, status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, and fairness. Ooh. Yeah. And so I think the one that you're kind of missing in your six is that fairness, which I do think the younger generation, especially, you know, my experience is working with predominantly BIPOC communities and fairness is a huge issue. Like they know, you know, they're aware of their oppression. They're aware that the system is not built for them. So I think that that's another thing to tap into is like when, when we can create opportunities for them to look at injustice or to learn about injustice or to create some sort of fix for injustices that they're aware of. Like I've, I've seen kids really get jazzed about that. So that's just one of, I think all of the other scarf is there except for fairness. It might be um, interesting for you to look at Where does scarf that. come from, Rachel? Is that like an article or? Yeah, it's just a brain, it's brain-based research. I don't know, my first- yeah, um, we'll, we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, so, my yeah. first oh, uh, instruction, or not instruction, my first leadership coach had me read that. And I, I always have my, my leaders that I coach read it because when they're working with adults, like, you know, there's that status. And as much as you can level the status or acknowledge the lack of status, then you're going to get farther. And then certainty, like we all want to be able to trust what will happen or be able to predict what will happen. Autonomy, obviously we've already talked about, um, relatedness, like, you know, as a principal, 
a lot of teachers see it as an us and them. Like once you go to the dark side of leadership, you know, so how can you actually show relatedness in our efforts as educators all around, regardless of what our titles are and then fairness. Mm-hmm. So if, if you're going to do this to that teacher, you're going to do this to that teacher too. So, and it's not written for educators. It's just about leadership. It's really cool. Interesting. Second one, a lot of what um, you've talked about makes me think of that um, kind of the Adam Grant buzz about flow, languishing and flow. Um, so he talks about like purpose, curiosity, feeling like they're belonging. It just, it made me think of a, what a, a lot of what he's talking about. So, you know, I know a lot of educators are still in that languishing mode and really themselves, you know, trying to figure out how to find the intrinsically motivated to do their job because we've been through the ringer for three years. So I think your six um, ways of thinking about intrinsic motivation can be helpful to us as adults too, not just kids. Yeah, I think that um, one of the reasons that it might be hard for us to break out of the cycle of using extrinsic motivation also is that as educators, many of us grew up with those systems in place. And for the most part, certainly it's not the case all the way across the board, but for the most part, people who choose to go into education as a career were usually pretty comfortable playing the school game. Yeah. Like we liked somebody else directing what we were doing and giving us grades and stickers on our paper. And we were generally fairly compliant And we're frustrated with our classmates who seemed to struggle with doing what they were supposed to be doing. And so as educators, we didn't, we may not have necessarily felt a lot of intrinsic motivation ourselves for schoolwork, which can then make it really hard to figure out what that should feel like in the classroom if we didn't feel it ourselves as students. And that that's worth exploring too, I think. Yeah. So my question for you is, you know, you said that you work in a lot of kind of suburban uh, schools. Some. Some, okay. So how is there differences within culture, right? So I'm I'm thinking about, I work with San Juan School District on a regular basis on the reservation in the Four Corners area. And, you know, when we're looking at the Navajo Nation and having and serving that community, like when I think about how to create intrinsic motivation for different communities, whether it be on the reservation or in our urban schools, like how does it change based on the, the students that we're serving? Or so one of, the, one of the things I talk about in the book around a sense of belonging, and I think it might actually get to what you were saying around fairness, okay. is that part of what we have to pay attention to is that kids need to feel like they are part of the school community. They need to feel like school is about them. And I remember going to a conference once, I think it was an ASCD conference where I heard Baruti Kafele speak. I don't know if either of you are familiar with Baruti Kafele, but he's absolutely amazing and does a lot of work with helping educators connect with black and brown boys, especially. That's, I know he does work with other things, but that's one of his areas of expertise. And he did this great little bit with us in the audience. He took up a pretend camera and took a pretend picture of the audience. And then he held up a white piece of paper and he said, okay, this is the picture that I just took of all the audience. And he held it up to us. He said, here's the picture. What's the first thing you look for in the picture? And everybody said, me. 
like ourselves. We all want to know where we are in the picture. It's the first thing we look for. And then as he's talking with great flourish, he starts ripping holes in the piece of paper and throwing the chunks of paper onto the floor. And he holds up his Swiss cheese piece of paper in the end. In, you know, afterwards, he says, this is what school looks like for too many of our black and brown boys. They look in the picture of school and they can't see themselves. So part of belonging is that we need to create classrooms and schools that are inclusive of the children we actually have in front of us. And so I've also done work in schools that are located on reservations or serve serve communities and reservations. And and that's, that's part of what we need to be doing is making sure that the educational experiences we're crafting for kids resonate with the kids themselves. So yes, yes, yes. That requires us to create space for them to tell us how that will happen. Especially if we ourselves are not from that community. Because so often when I go into schools like you're talking about, most of the teachers are white. Yeah. And they grew up in suburban Philadelphia or Milwaukee, you know, like, so it's really hard if you've got a lot of white teachers who didn't grow up in that culture and community who aren't part of the community to craft a school environment that's going to resonate for the kids. So yeah, one of the best ways we can do that is to have the kids help us shape their own educational experiences. We can have them co-create units with us. What are the questions you have? What are the things you care about that we can connect with this unit of study that we're doing? Um, yeah, so one of the, it's partners in their learning experience so that they're helping us craft their learning experience would be a great way to go. Yeah. In one of the schools that I work in, they, they were having a parent night and this has to do with extrinsic motivation or intrinsic both. The first time they had the parent night, they had like a 64 inch screen, flat screen TV that they were giving away, like in a lottery. And they only had like three parents come. I mean, just minimal. Yeah. I don't know. It was later that same year, I think they decided we'll give away a sheep. And so they, they advertised it just the same way they had advertised this, the TV, but this time they're like, we're giving away a sheep, like a huge, huge percent of the, of the family population came. And part of me didn't really, I mean, like I may, I think I probably made some well-meaning pity assumptions about that, but now I'm thinking like, they're like, oh, you see us. That's what we need. You know, we don't need the flat screen TV, but you see us, we want a sheep because that's our, that contributes to our livelihood. So that sense of belonging and like they, awesome. they see us, they know who we are. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And are we using language patterns that, that resonate with the kids that we're serving? Um, I was just doing some work in a school recently about the sort of white middle-class expectation that good learners are quiet ones. You know, that we wait and raise our hand before we share an idea. That's very much a white middle-class construct. And in lots of areas of urban poverty or rural poverty, um, or not even, or just urban settings, it doesn't even have to be poverty. I work in a lot, I actually work in a lot of schools um, in the Northeast that are rural. They're mostly white, but they're rural and there are really high rates of poverty. Uh And, and the idea that people don't talk over each other is actually totally something that only happens in school. <laughs> but yeah. f- 
families talk over each other. You go to churches, people are talking over each other and calling out. And so we have to be aware also of our language habits and patterns. Are we creating classroom environments that, that match what kids' uh, experiences are? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, th I see that all is wrapped up in that sense of belonging. Okay. Are, are we creating cultures and climates that actually resonate and fit with the kids that we've got? Okay. Yeah. Cool. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Mike, for talking with us today. And uh, I've learned a ton and um, I'm excited to be able to try to bring some of this back to my school. I know Rachel probably is excited to bring some of it into her coaching oh, and, yeah. and consulting work. So um, thank you. And thanks for uh, being uh, such a great contributor to the world of education. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. And thank you both. This is a really fun conversation. And um, I appreciate help, help, I appreciate you helping to get the word out about this. Um, because the sort of cynical snarky part of me says if I wanted to make a lot of money writing a book like this, which would be an extrinsic motivator, by the way, <laughs> <clears throat> then I would have written a book about 100 great ways to spice up your gem jars. Because yeah. <laughs> I think that's what a lot of people think they need. And so I fully recognize that this is a book that pushes on what I think a lot of people feel like they should be doing in the classroom. And so I sort of, as I was writing it, was thinking, boy, this could be the best book I've ever written and no one's going to read it. <laughs> so I appreciate you help getting the word out about it. No, I think, I think your definition of intrinsic motivation to me is a total game changer. So um, yeah, I, I'm, I'll be blasting your, your book out to as many people as possible. Great. Thanks. Well, I really Jim, enjoyed the conversation. Yeah. Don't you usually ask, about like if there's one or two, the littlest thing that someone could do. What's the question? Well, I feel like I feel like you've covered it. I feel like you've gone there. So okay. there's, there's many little things that we can grab onto and, and use. So thank you. You're welcome. And how about just a final recap? Because it does, the conversation goes all over, but the, the three key points of this work is that we need to move away from the broad-based use of extrinsic motivators. Okay. That move away from those tap into kids' intrinsic motivations, and then help them get the skills and strategies they need to manage themselves so that they can follow through on their motivation. I love that last part. Those are kind of three key ideas if we want to help kids move beyond compliance or if we want to help kids actually get fired up and jazzed up about the work. Those are the three things to focus on. Yeah, and I think that third part, help them self-motivate and self-manage probably is what makes your book different than most of what's out there, I think. I and what, like real life SEL stuff. Cause yeah. I think we have gone into it, a scary realm in that, in that regard. Right on. Well, thank you so much. You're Absolutely. muted again. Oh, sorry. Have a wonderful day and happy new year. Yeah, you too. Thanks, you too. All right. Nice meeting you, Bye. Bye. Bye-bye.